We're up to chapter 4, Mishnah number 18. Rabbi Nehorai Omer, Rabbi Nehorai says, Havigola lemakram Torah. You should exile to a place of Torah. Val tomar shitavacharecha. And don't say that it will follow you. The Torah will follow you. Shavarechi kamubi adecha. That your friends will fulfill it in your hands. Ve'elbinascha al tisha'en. And it quotes a verse from Proverbs. Don't rely on your own understanding. So this is a short, another short Mishnah. The author is Rabbi Nehorai, and he's telling us that we should exile to a place of Torah. Now, who was Rabbi Nehorai? He's actually mentioned a couple of times in Mishnah and a few times in the associated literature. But his identity is actually a great mystery in the Talmud. So, for example, the Talmud in the book of Erevin 13b tells us, his name is not Nehorai, that's a nickname. His true name is Rabbi Nehemiah. In fact, the recent missions that we've had were authored by students of Rabbi Tiva, and one of the students, the final student of Rabbi Tiva that we've met, is Rabbi Nehemiah. And there is a good case to be made that the author of our current Mishnah is actually none other than Rabbi Nehemiah, another student of Rabbi Tiva. That's one opinion in the Talmud Book of Erevin, page 13b. The second opinion, and the most likely candidate to be the author of our Mishnah, is that it's not a student of Rabbi Akiva, it's actually a student of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, whose name was Rabbi Elazar ben Arach. And why were they given the nickname Nehorai? The word Nehorai means to enlighten. And these sages, or whoever was called Nehurai, was such a bright scholar that they would enlighten the other colleagues in Torah study. So those are the two options. Either it's Rabbi Nehemiah, a student of Rabbi Tiva, which would fit in with the other authors that are adjacent to this Mishnah. Alternatively, it is not the student of Rabbi Tiva, it's not from that generation, it's several generations prior you have the generation of Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai, student of Hillel and Shammai. And his students are Rabbi Yezer, Rabbi Yehoshua, and Rabbi Elazar ben Arach. And their students are Rabbi Tiva, and their students are the students of Rabbi Tiva. So this is uh, one of two uh, generations apart from the sages of the Mishnah. Now, it seems most likely that the author of this Mishnah is Rabbi Elazar ben Arach. And he's actually been featured several times already in Perkei Avos, in Chapters of the Fathers, in Chapter 2, because we are talking about the students of Rabbi Yochumet Zakkai, and it lists his five students, and we have a little bit of a dialogue, a little bit of a narrative between Rabbi Yochumet Zakkai and his students. So it tells us, this is back in Chapter 2, that Rabbi Yochumet Zakkai had five students, Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Yoshua, Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Shimon, and finally, Rabbi Elazar ben Arach, most likely the best candidate to be the author of our Mishnah. And back in chapter 2, we learned that each one of Rabbi Yochum Zakkai's students, the five primary students, each one of them were classified by their great teacher, and they're told, exactly we're told, what their great characteristics are. So Rabbi Eliezer, we're told that he's like a, a cistern that doesn't lose a drop. 
all the Torah that you put into him, everything, everything he retains. Rabbi Yeshua, we're told that his, his parents are praiseworthy. He's such a specimen, such a, an amazing child that we have to praise his parents. Rabbi Yossi is a chassid. He's a pious one. Rabbi Shimon is someone who's fearful of sin. And finally, Rabbi Elazar ben Arach, again, the best candidate to be the author of our Mishnah, he is like a ma'ayan hamit gaber. He's like an overwhelming spring. His Torah novel insights come with such rapidity that it's like a spring that's forever spewing more and more Torah. And then the Mishnah tells us which one of these five students were greater than the others. So the first opinion was that Rabbi Eliezer, not Rabbi Elazar, it's a little confusing, Rabbi Eliezer ben Hurkanus, he was the greatest of the sages. In fact, he put all the sages of Israel on one side of a scale. And you put Rabbi Eliezer on the second side of the scale, if you're able to somehow spiritually evaluate their greatness, According to the first opinion, Rabbi Eliezer ben Hurkanus would outweigh all the other sages. That's the first opinion. The second opinion is that no. If you were to take all the sages of Israel and you include Rabbi Eliezer ben Hurkanus and you put them on one side of the scale, and then you take Rabbi Lazar ben Arach, again, the likeliest candidate to be the author of our Mishnah, you put him on the other side of the scale, he would spiritually outweigh his peers, his colleagues. So we're talking about, at least as a student of Rabbi Yochum and Zakai, Rabbi Yochum and Zakai, the greatest sage in the land. And these are his five greatest students. And of the five greatest students, we have, at least according to one opinion, the student that outweighs, that outshines all the rest of them, the absolute best candidate to become the next great leader of the Jewish people is the author of our Mishnah. But something very tragic happened to him. The Talmud tells us in the book of Shabbos, page 147b, it's talking about a few different locales, a few different cities, a place called Prugaisa, a place called Dumeses, different cities in the region of where the Jews were living in Israel. And it tells us that these cities had a lot going for them. The city of Prugaisa, had the best wine. It was the wine country. People who wanted to indulge in wine, they would go there to sample the wine of that city. And the other city, Dumeses, that had great bathing waters. These were places that people go for vacation. These were places that people would go because they wanted to live in a very nice, comfortable place. And the Talmud tells us that as a result of these cities... And the tantalizing pleasures that they offered, the ten tribes of Israel were lost. Why? There's ten tribes in the northern kingdom of Israel. And they became pleasure seekers. And they would be interested in drinking wine and getting drunk and indulging and bathing. And they abandoned Torah. And consequently, they were lost from the Jewish people. That's the background of this story. So you have these cities, these locales that are very enticing for pleasure seekers. And then it tells us that Rabbi Elazar ben Arach, the prodigy, the wunderkind, 
the great future of the Jewish people, the greatest student, the, potentially the next great leader of Jewish people, he visited these places. And he was drawn to all the pleasures of these cities. And he moved there. And consequently, he forgot his Torah. And all the other sages, they moved to the city of Yavne. After the temple's destroyed, the Jews, of course, are not allowed to live in Jerusalem anymore. And the great sages moved to Yavne. All the students of Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai, with the exception of the author of our Mishnah, all the students moved to Yavne. But Rabbi Elisabeth Manorov says, I'm moving elsewhere. I'm moving to the place where it's more comfortable, it's more enjoyable, it's a more pleasant living experience. And he moves there, and he forgets his Torah. He's not surrounded by sages. He's not surrounded by scholars. He is alone, and his Torah becomes forgotten. And once he came to visit his friends, his peers, in Yavne, and... It was time to read the Torah. So everyone was so excited that the great sage, Rabbi Elizabeth Arach, came to visit them. What an amazing opportunity. And they said, you know what? Why don't you read from the Torah? And they were up to chapter 12 of Exodus, a very important chapter in the Torah. Of course, all the chapters in the Torah are equally important. But this is a unique chapter because this is when it talks about the mitzvos that the Jewish people get in Egypt. They're about to leave. And they get the mitzvos. It's time to, to make a Passover Seder. It's time to organize the calendar. And he is given the honor of reading the Torah. And he has forgotten his Torah so thoroughly that instead of reading the verse as Hachodesh Hazeh Lachem, this month is for you, which is the beginning of the reading that we do in chapter 12 of Exodus. This month is the first month of the calendar, the month of Nisan he actually confused the letters. Instead of reading HaChodesh, he read it HaCheresh. Chodesh means the month. Cheresh means hard of hearing, means death. And the next word, Hazeh, Hey, Zion, Hey, he read it Haya. He confused the Zion and the Yud. And the word Lachem, which means to you, this month is to you. Instead of reading Lachem, he read it Libam, which means your heart. So he confuses the letters. And instead of reading Achoresh Zalachem, this month is to you, he instead reads Hacheresh Hayalibam. Their heart became death. This is a terrible development. Again, one of the brightest minds, the brightest sages, the one who potentially outweighs all of his peers in Torah study and Torah greatness. A great future is anticipated for him, and now he has devolved to such a degree that he's not even reading the Torah properly. He's getting letters mixed up. And the sages were, were so shaken up that they all started praying. They prayed for him, and his Torah was restored. That's what the Talmud says. And... The commentaries point out that, you know, if you look at the way these letters are written out. So, hachodesh and hacheresh, the dalit and the resh are actually very similar looking letters. The only difference is that the dalit on the top has a little appendage that the resh doesn't have. But we could see how kids, kids maybe people who are new to reading Hebrew, could get those confused. 
And the Yud and the Zion, the Zion and the Yud are very similar. The Zion has just goes a little bit longer. The stick goes a little bit longer. And the Bays and the Chaf, also very similar. The Bays has a little appendage in the bottom, and that's what distinguishes it from the Chaf. So the fact that he got these letters confused, it's almost understandable. But what message was he supposed to read? This is the new month. And this is the verse that heralds the Jewish people starting to get mitzvahs in Mas. And instead, almost symbolically, he read it as if it said, their heart became deaf. He was someone who had this overwhelming spring of Torah. That's what his potential was. He had such sensitivity to Torah, his heart was a perfect receptacle of Torah. And now, sadly, his heart became deaf, and there's that deep meaning in his blunder. And it's actually somewhat ironic and sad. Back in chapter 2 of Pirtiavos, Rabbi Yochbazakai, he tasks his students, his five top students, go find the best path to choose in life and go find the worst path to choose in life. And Rabbi Elazar, the author of our Mishnah, he says the best path is a good heart and the worst path is a bad heart. He comes up with all these heart-related insights because that's what he was. He had a deep heart for Torah, for holiness, for spirituality. And now, sadly, as a result of that, his heart became deaf. He lost that. And the Talmud goes on to say that this story is the background of our Mishnah. And the Talmud quotes our Mishnah. Our Mishnah says, that is why Rabbi Nehorai taught that you should exile yourself to a place of Torah. And the Talmud concludes, his name was not Rabbi Nehorai, his real name was Rabbi Elazar ben Arach. This is almost like an autobiographical Mishnah. Rabbi Elazar ben Arach, like the rest of the sages, they were forced to go into exile. They were living in Jerusalem. They had the temple. They had Rabbi, their teacher, Rabbi Yochum and Zakkai, And they were studying together and things were great. And then Jerusalem was destroyed. Living there was no longer tenable. They had to go into exile. And they were given various choices. There was the place that had all the wine. It had all the amenities. It was up and coming. Great real estate. Great bathing opportunities. It was a great place to live. Its real estate was very valuable. And what did Rabbi Azim Rach choose? He chose to follow that particular path of exile. The rest of his colleagues, even though they were smaller sages than he was, they said, you know what, we're just going to follow the academy. We're going to exile to a place of Torah. And if all the sages are moving to Yavne, it's not as nice. The wine is not as good. The bathing opportunity is not as great. The real estate is not as special. But we're going there because that's where the Torah is following. And here, it's almost like the great sages lamenting the mistake that he made, I followed the wrong indicators in my pursuit of real estate. I should have exiled to a place of Torah. Now, his argument was, or his rationale was, after all, I'm the greatest sage. And he was the greatest sage. After Rabbi Yochum and Zakkai passes, who was the next greatest sage? It was Rabbi Lazar ben Arach. 
So he assumed that his force of personality would inspire others to follow him. And therefore, yes, the academy moved to Yavne, but eventually it will relocate to where he is. That's just the natural course of things. But obviously, it didn't work out. The Midrash adds to the story that when he saw that his peers were not following him, he said, you know what? It was a bad idea to move here. I'm going to move back to Yavne. He wanted a course correct. But his wife said, not a good idea. Who needs who? Does the mouse need the bread or does the bread need the mouse? That's what his wife said. The other sages, they're like mice. They need your bread. They need your Torah. And therefore, they should come to you. You shouldn't come to them. And obviously, it's a very offensive thing to say about Torah style is to compare them to mice. And the logic of this argument maybe is true, but he was convinced by it, and he remained where he was, and subsequently he forgot his Torah, and things really went south for him. And as a result, there are very few teachings that remain from Rabbi Elazar ben Arach or Rabbi Nehorai in the Talmud. One of them we do find in the end of the Talmud of Kiddushin. And again, it seems to once again be autobiographical. He says, quote, Rabbi Nehorai Omer, Rabbi Nehorai says, I will abandon all the crafts, all the trades in the world, all the occupations in the world, and I'm only going to teach my son Torah. Because Torah, a person could eat the benefits of the Torah in this world, but the principle of the reward for Torah is preserved for Olam Abba. Torah is the best occupation because you could eat its fruits here, but the principle remains for you in Olam Abba. Suppose someone is a craftsman and they get old or they get sick, they're on disability, you know what's going to happen to them? They're going to die in hunger. But Torah is not like that. Torah will guard you from all evil in your youth and will give you a bright future and destiny in your old days. So again, he is apparently reflecting on the choices that he made. He had, of course, the Torah priorities, but ultimately he chose to live in a city bereft of Torah. He highlighted other priorities, and now he's telling us, and we're preserving this teaching for posterity, that he made a mistake, and he, in the future, for his son, so to speak, he's not going to make that choice, and he's going to push them towards Torah to make that the highest priority. The commentaries point out, doesn't mean that you don't teach a child any occupation. It means that, of course, you teach a child an occupation, but ultimately who they really are, what they're really living for, their number one priority, that is going to be Torah. So this is the author of our Mishnah. Again, a very sad and tragic figure in Jewish history. Someone who was destined for absolute greatness, destined to be the leader of the next cadre, the next cohort of sages, and ultimately someone who failed at achieving his potential, 
and forgot Allah's Torah because he separated himself and moved away from the epicenter of Torah, he regained it, but he was, again, destined to be this overwhelming spring of Torah, and that never materialized. And he's telling us a general idea that if you're going to go into exile, you have to relocate where to move. Move to a place of Torah. And I would say more broadly, the lesson of this Mishnah is that people are influenced by their surroundings. And if you want to get into finance, you move to New York or to London. You want to get into technology, you move to Silicon Valley. If oil and gas is your thing, you move to Texas. Right? You want to get into entertainment, you go to where the action is. You go to, you go to Los Angeles, right? There's this idea that the surroundings that you, where you're in, that's going to influence your ability to excel in whatever given field you're interested in. I would say even on a more granular level, there's this idea that you are the average of the five people that you hang around the most. Because the people that you're surrounding yourself with, that's going to filter down and influence you. And if someone really wants to become great in Torah, they can't do it on an island. You have to be surrounded by other Torah sages to accomplish that. Now, there's a teaching in the Talmud that conveys this idea. The Talmud in the book of Tainas, page 7a, the Talmud quotes a verse in Proverbs chapter 27 that talks about metal upon metal. And the way the Talmud explains that is that just as if you have two implements of metal and each one of them can sharpen each other, two blades, each one of them, if you scrape them against each other, they each sharpen sharpen the other one, so too, Torah is like that. You have two Torah scholars, two powerful metal metallic implements, even if they're sharp, when they're surrounded by other metallic sharp instruments, they can advance their abilities, they can develop their abilities, they can sharpen and hone their skills. Moreover, the Talmud says, quotes a verse in Jeremiah, the words of God are like fire, just as you can't start a fire by itself, the fire will burn out, you need to have other things there to have a big fire. So too, if you want to become a Torah scholar, to initiate your immersion in Torah, you have to be surrounded by other Torah sages. And the Talmud there concludes that it's not only students who need others. In fact, there's a famous saying here quoted in the Talmud in Titus page 7a. The great sage Rabbi Hanina says, I studied a lot of Torah from my teachers and from my peers, my colleagues, even more, and from my students, more than all of them. Not only does a student need a teacher to teach him Torah, a teacher needs the student even more than the students need the teacher. You know, I I encounter, thankfully, a lot of people all over the country, all over the world, that study Torah via my podcast and various other efforts that we do at Torch. And some of them have the great fortune of traveling to Israel, most often, 
and studying Torah on a very advanced level in the yeshiva. And it's amazing. You know, if someone could listen to Torah podcasts 12 hours a day, and they'll grow in Torah, that's definite. But when someone is immersed in it, when someone's in an environment of Torah, what you accomplish in a month in Israel, in a place of Torah, that outweighs what you could do in years by yourself. Because the environment makes the man. You know, the environment makes the person. If someone's in a Torah environment, it's not just about studying Torah. It's about being surrounded by Torah, being in an environment surrounded by people, a culture of Torah that really is absorbed, that really influences a person. Again, it doesn't say in our Mishnah, you should exile yourself to study Torah. No. Exile yourself to a place of Torah. People are influenced not just by what they do, but by where they are. And if you're in a place of Torah, that is going to influence you tremendously. You know, reading this Mishnah, it does leave me with a little bit of a, of a wistful feeling. You know, I, I had the great fortune of spending more than 10 years in Israel studying in Shiva. And this is the epicenter of Torah in the world today is, is in Israel. And where am I now? Well, now I'm in my parents' basement in New York. But in general, we moved to Houston, Texas. And Houston, thank God, it's got a great Jewish infrastructure. It's got lots of kosher food. And it's got a, you know, it's, it has the makings of a, of a very dynamic Torah community. The kids have a good school and there's a lot of different shuls and a lot of people studying Torah. But it's not quite the same environment as Jerusalem where the world's greatest scholars are all coalesced, well, in Jerusalem, but in Israel in general, and the great yeshivas with 10,000 students. You know, Houston did open a yeshiva, by the way, this past year, a high school, yeshiva high school. And they have four students. And that sounds very small, but it hopefully the beginning of something very beautiful. But four students, and then you have a yeshiva, just one yeshiva, there's probably hundreds of yeshivas in Jerusalem. But one yeshiva with 10,000 students, that's an emporium of Torah. And I left that to move to Houston. What was I thinking? Did I exile away from Torah to Torah? So that's a question that I'll have to wrestle with. Uh, It's obviously a dilemma. You know, I personally feel that there was a lot of abilities that were unearthed within me when I'm forced to teach, when I'm forced to be an influencer, when I take somewhat of a leadership role. I feel like I've actually grown a lot kind of in this new environment. It's been a year. It's not that new, I guess. But it it's an amazing opportunity to unearth all these latent skills, latent abilities that maybe I wouldn't have developed if I wasn't in this environment. But it's an interesting dilemma, I think, that people have to have to reckon with. If you're in a place of Torah and you move to a relative wasteland, you may be forfeiting a lot. Yes, ultimately, it might be the best move for you, for your family, for a host of other reasons, but you may be forfeiting a lot in what the environment actually does to a person. That's just a a personal musings that I I thought of when reading this Mishnah. 
But I think this advice comes from someone who went through this challenge, made, in his mind, the wrong decision, and is advising us not to repeat his mistakes. I would, again, speculate there have been various waves of immigration of Jews from Europe to the United States and elsewhere. And the first large wave of immigration, Russian and German Jews moved to the United States in the 1880s. And a lot of these Jews left the poverty and the misery of Europe, but also left the Torah infrastructure of Europe. And they came to America, and America really did not have a lot to offer its Jews by in, in way of religion, because there was just nothing here. And it is somewhat sad that a lot of Torah and Torah opportunity was lost. And even sometimes people came as rabbis. But if there's no school, there's no kosher food, and kids are going to public school, and kids don't have any Jewish friends or any Jewish network or any Jewish environment, how are they possibly going to grow up and be raised as good Jews? It's it's just, it's not feasible because what you could do as an individual is limited. The environment is going to often outweigh any sort of work that you do. And as a, even as a parent, you're a parent, you want to influence your child. Where do you send to school? What are their friends into? that is going to have a much larger influence on how they turn out than the preaching, even maybe the praying that you do as a parent. I think it's a very powerful lesson for us. We're told sometimes we have to make choices. We have to go into exile and we are being urged. We're being coached to take into account what kind of an environment we're going to move to. So that's this Mishnah, a very powerful idea, I think a very relevant idea to take into account the environment. The environment is going to determine largely how people turn out. Very powerful, very relevant lesson.